Well, this morning, dealing with fear of losing control of your children, I recall years ago, many, many years ago, actually, I guess I'm old enough to now say many, many years ago, a parent, a set of parents came in to see me, and they did not attend here, never have, but they came to see me because they needed help with their teenage boy. It turned out that he uh, had... uh, kind of gotten out of control. He had a temper, and he would uh, throw a temper tantrum, and when he did, they did not know how to deal. And so these parents came in to see me, sat down in my office. Their teenage son sat outside as they recounted the problem with their boy. He was now bigger than they, and they were scared. The last incident, there were several, but the last incident that this uh, family recounted to me was that they were standing in the kitchen, mom, dad, and boy, they said something he didn't like. He got angry, grabbed a five-pound bag of potatoes, and hurled them at his mother. She dodged. They missed uh, her, thankfully, and that was the straw, I guess. So we sat in my office and we talked and I said, well, what is your boy like? He was a big strapping kid, starting basketball player for the high school. And I said, well, I have a solution. What is it? They were eager to hear. I said, as of today, he's finished with basketball. Those parents gasped. Are you serious? I said, yes. If he cannot handle being uh, your son in the home, then I don't think he can handle being a basketball player on the court. Why don't I bring him in? I'll let you guys step out. Well, I'll break the news to him for you. And so he came in, sat there, uh, talked to him a little bit about why he was there, and then told him that as of that moment, there was no more basketball in his life. His floor, his jaw hit the floor. I said, I've talked to your parents, and obviously you're good at basketball and throwing potatoes, Um, and so we've got to take care of this, and we're going to give you a four-week period. If there's a change, you can revisit basketball. That's the agreement that we have. We actually put it in contract form, made him, uh, or he had the choice to sign off on it. He signed off on that. Four weeks later, we met, didn't hear a word from them for four weeks. They come back in to meet, meet with me, and we sat down, and I said, well, how are things going? And those, my, that mom and dad looked at me and said, we have a new son. I said, what? They said, an absolutely new son. He's a new kid. We don't know what's happened to him, but there's been no temper tantrums, nothing at all. I said, your kid loves some basketball, doesn't he? They said, yes, he does. I want to say to you this morning that the problem with this kid wasn't as much the kid as it was the parent's. Why? Because each of us as parents have a vision for our children. We have a vision for our children, and as we rear our children and raise our children, we function out of that vision that we have for them. And these parents were no exception to that rule. I want to put forth to you this morning that vision, I think, is the antidote to fear When you fear losing control of your children, vision is. You say, Jerry, how so? We find Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. Her husband had blown it. 
he uh, decided to marry another person. Uh, so uh, he's got uh, Peninnah, who's his wife, and Hannah, who's his wife, and his uh, other wife could have children. Hannah can't have children, and so this jealousy develops between them. But more than that, in Hannah is this longing for a child. I know that some of you moms sit here this morning and Mother's Day isn't fun, or some of you women sit here and Mother's Day isn't fun for you at all, for you're in the same boat. You long to have a child. And so Hannah longed for a child and they would go up every year to worship at Shiloh. They go to worship at Shiloh on this certain year and when they get to Shiloh, Hannah is so burdened for a child, she begins to pray. And as she begins to pray, words aren't coming out of her mouth, but her mouth is moving. And so uh, Eli thinks that she is drunk. And he calls her out for it. And she says, no, that isn't the case at all. I want a child. And so Eli, the priest, sends her home and says, God will grant your request. And sure enough, Hannah gets pregnant. And she has baby boy Samuel. Samuel is born, but Hannah made this vow to God. And her vow was this, God, if you'll give me a boy, I'll put him in your service and he will serve you the rest of his life. And even beyond that, I'll make a Nazarite out of him, meaning no haircut and meaning no alcohol. He will be this set-apart kid. His name Samuel has a clue as well. His name means God has given, so I will give back. The word Samuel means God has given. It's a play on words. God has given, so I'll give back. I would say to you this morning that for every parent in the room, no matter what your kids' names are, you probably should put in parentheses after it, Samuel. Meaning, God has given, so I'll give back. God has given me my son, so God, I give my son back to you. God has given me my daughter, so God, I give my daughter back to you. I would say to you this morning that what we have here is a prototype that every single parent in the room needs to follow. And I also know that some of you have been at those places where you came to the end of yourself as a mom, as a dad, and there was nothing more you could do and you cried out, God, you gave them to me. I definitely give them to you because I cannot fix this. It's a tough place to be as a mom. It's a tough place to be as a dad. From this account of Hannah and Elkanah, we discover two principles, two critical principles. Number one, you have a vision for your children. You have a vision for your children. We see Hannah's vision here at the outset. Alcana and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But verse 22, Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. What is Hannah's vision for her son? to appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. She says on this yearly pilgrimage to Shiloh, 
where the tabernacle is, where the holy of holies is, where the presence of God is. I'm not going up, but I will one day. As soon as Samuel is weaned, I'll take him. And when I do, he will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That's her simple vision statement for her boy. You have one of those. You may have never articulated it. You may have never said it out loud. You may have never put it on a piece of paper. But somewhere up here, every mom in the room, you have a vision for your kids. Dads, too. We'll see later how we invest in that vision. But you have a vision for your children. Hannah is saying... I'm going to stick to this vision that I have. In their book, The Blessing, The Gift of the Blessing, Smalley and Trent tell the story of a, of a Jewish mom named Sidel. Sidel is walking down the street. She's pushing her twins in, her, in, in the stroller. And when she rounds the corner and sees her neighbor, Sarah, and Sarah says, oh, what beautiful boys. What are their names? And Sidel, the mom, looks at uh, her neighbor, Sarah, and she says, well, here's Benny the lawyer and Reuben the doctor. What is her point? What is Smalley and Trent's point? That you as parents are in the position of having a vision for your children. If I say the name Zuckerberg, many of you are going to know who I'm talking about. He had a vision. He will tell you never, ever to start a big company. His vision, which he has never altered from, was to connect the world. He's 29 years old. He's worth $25 billion, and many of you have helped make him rich on Facebook. All right, so Zuckerberg established Facebook. In February, he was speaking. They just reached, Facebook just reached its one billionth user. And what does he say in his speech in February? His mission his vision is still to connect the world. That's his vision. Yes, it's made him rich. And does a billion users satisfy him? No, he's glued to his vision. And so I would say to you this morning, you have a vision for your children. The question is, what is it? What is it? We say, Jerry, I'd like to find out principle number two. Only two principles today. Number one, you have a vision for your children. Number two, you invest in that vision. If you don't know what your vision is, just check your checkbook out. You invest in that vision for your children. How did El Elkanah and Hannah do this? Uh, the very first verse, verse 21, that Deb read, says, The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. What was his vow that needed paying? It wasn't his. It was Hannah's vow. That's interesting. He went to pay her vow. What was her vow? God, give me a boy. He'll work in your uh, tabernacle the rest of his life. And so here's the interesting fact. Elkanah could have nullified that vow. The law allows him as her husband to make the vow null and void. He can back off of, nullify the vow. 
what would that have meant? Little Samuel would grow up in their house the rest of his life. Little Samuel would become big Samuel in their place. When he takes that offering and takes it up to Shiloh, he is saying, this is a done deal. You invest in your vision for your kids. What happens? Hannah says, I'll stay back until he's weaned. How long is that? Three years? Moms, could you picture this for me for a moment? Picture having your son or your daughter just for three years. What are those three years going to be like? That was the weaning period in Israel. Samuel would no longer be nursing at the end of three years. Hannah hears him say his first words. Hannah watches him take his first steps. Hannah sees her little boy do all of those things that mothers delight in, that mothers love, that mothers enjoy, only to know at the end of three years we're going to make a pilgrimage up to Shiloh. And when we get to Shiloh, I'm going to leave my three-year-old Samuel there. He won't be coming back. Wow. That tears everything in a mother's heart. So between verses 23 and 24 are what J.D. Greer calls white space. Three years happen between those two verses. And in between those two verses, Samuel is weaned. Hannah takes him up to Shiloh. How does she do it? She takes at least one bull. Some translations down uh, will, will say three bulls because of the amount of uh, flour and wine. Uh, the actual amounts of flour and wine are enough to sacrifice three bulls. We're not sure if it's one or if it's three, but what we know, it was lavish. You see, Hannah didn't go up to Shiloh for that last trip with her boy Samuel kicking and screaming. She went with expensive offerings to offer to God, even though that would be the last day she would have with her boy as his mother she would turn him over to a priest and his wife who would raise her son to, to know God and to serve the nation Israel. And she gets there, and I love her. Can't wait to get to heaven and meet this woman, right? She gets there, and she finds Eli. Eli is the priest who thought she was drunk. And she says, Eli, it's Hannah here. You know, the one that you thought, well, here's the boy. Here's the boy that God gave. And she says this, God lent him to me. I lend him to you. God has given. I'll give back. I would say to you, the fear of rearing children is calmed when they're given to the Lord. When you can truthfully say, God, I want your vision for my children. 
there's peace. How do we invest in, in our vision for our children? Well, if you wish your child to be a soccer player, you'll spend a lot of time on the soccer field. If you want her to be a great dancer, you'll spend a lot of time in the studio. One out of every five families spends more than $1,000 a year for their kids to play sports in this country. If your aim is for your daughter to be a fantastic star basketball player, you'll spend your energy, you'll spend your money there, you invest time, you invest money, and you invest mental energy. Those are the three big investments parents make in their children. Time, money, the intellectual investment that you make. Guess what? As a youth pastor, I sat with many, many teenagers, and I could ask each of them, and did often, what is your mom and dad's dream for your life? If mom and dad had never articulated it, every one of them knew it. Why? All they had to do was recount all the conversations. They had to figure out where the money went. It's easy to trace. You have a vision for your children, and you invest in that vision. It is just natural, if you're a good parent, to invest in whatever vision it is that you have for your children. So the number one question I have for you is, what is that vision? Where do you see them five years from now, ten years from now? Where do you see them? Yesterday, Adrian and Whitney got married. Trent and I are trekking to the wedding, just Trent and me. We're in the Jeep. He's 11. And so we're riding down the road, and he looks over at me, and he says, Dad, what kind of car do you think I'm going to drive? Now the kid's 11. All right, we got five years to figure this one out. I said, I'm not sure, son. What, what do you think? He said, oh, a Mustang. I said, listen, I've never met a 16-year-old who needed that much power under the hood, son. It's not going to be a Mustang. He said, well, I like Jeep Wranglers. I said, well, Dave Grindstaff will give you his, and we, we're good on that. And so uh, we talked about Jeep Wranglers for a little bit, and I thought we were done. And he looked over, and he said, Dad, where do you think I'm going to go to college? So we talked about colleges for a couple of minutes, and I just letting him guide the conversation here. He said, Dad, what do you think I'm going to study? And so I guessed what I thought he might study, you know, based on knowing him. And then he did the funniest thing, and I wish Eugene Holland was here. He's with his mom today. But I wish he was here because he said, no, Dad, you're wrong. I plan to go be a mechanic and be just like Eugene Holland. I said, listen, son, you graduate elementary school. No, I didn't um, pull that off. But at any rate, um, I, said, uh, I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I plan to own my own business, hire my own people. I said, well, you know, I think you'll be a leader. Whatever you do, you, you have that. And we, we talked about that for a little bit. Why is that necessary? Let me tell you why. It's the same reason I wear glasses. I have glasses on, and you can't tell, but they, they're bifocals. They're progressive lens, all right? I'm old. And so I can see through the top you. I can see through the bottom what I'm reading. And it all works in this area right here. So if I take these off, you look so much better. I'm kidding. You, you, I can't make out your face. 
I can know you're sitting there, but I have no clue who you are. But when I put these on, all of a sudden, I see you. You as a parent are glasses for your children. They cannot see well. They can't. They will struggle oftentimes to see through the fog. And what you'll do is see through the fog for them. You will see what they don't see. You will speak into what they cannot understand. When they're five, when they're seven, when they're 12, when they're 16, they will need to see beyond their scope of vision. My question for you is, what is your vision for them? Number two, are you communicating it? Trent and I went on to talk, and it reminds me of this verse in Proverbs. Many people quote it in parenting because it kind of comforts you. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Let me give you a qualification of that verse and speak to it for a moment. Qualification. It's a proverb, which means it's a probability, not a promise, all right? So, uh, proverbs are probabilities. They must be understood that way. Number two, in the way he should go means according to his bent. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Uh, according to his bent. That means if you have more than one child, you know this, uh, one kid will have one personality and another kid will have a completely another one, won't they? Uh, Hannah, who's sitting here, is quiet. She's reserved. And if anything, we have to nudge her at times. Trent, we put the reins on, the bits in his mouth, and pull back with everything we got. They're just so different. And so yesterday in the conversation, I said, Trent, could, could I share with you what I think you're going to struggle with most in middle school? And then I'll leave that between us, but he and I talked about that. Just this conversation that he and I had. He's got this gregarious personality. Many of you know that Trent can't hear well, and now his hearing is the worst it's ever been, ever. It is so bad now that he has to wear a headset at school when he takes tests, and the teacher wears one with a microphone around front, and so Trent could hear what she's saying. Well, he hated it. Day one on Thursday, despised it. He came home, you know, just hated that thing. And I picked him up from school on Friday, and he jumped in the, and I was driving the truck, and he jumped in the truck, and he said, oh, man. I think I could like this headset thing. And I thought, oh, no, what's happened? I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, today my teacher was teaching, and this kid started acting up. And she got mad, and she yelled, and when she did, I jumped out of my seat <laughs> because it was right in my ear, he said. And when I jumped, she said, sorry, Trent. <laughs> he said, but that's not the best. She took that kid out in the hall and forgot to turn it off, and I heard everything. <laughs> he said everything. I thought, we are done. We are done. This kid is loving some headset now. Loving it. He said, as soon as she walked in, I yanked it off my head. Like, I didn't hear what you said out there. 
loving it. Hannah would never do that. Like, ever? No, she would never want to know what's said out in the hallway. Trent, if he could, would know what's said in every room in the building. Our kids are just so different, aren't they? If you have more than one, you know this. And so what you do, please hear me. Here is the sweet spot I want to find. The intersection of the bent of my child and God's plan. If I can get there, I know and work there, if I can get there, there will be times I will make my son or daughter unhappy. But if I can find that intersection as a dad, I can get at God's vision for their lives. Their personality and God's plan, the intersecting point. It's critical, absolutely critical. What happens? Hannah gets there. She talks to Eli. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. What does that mean? If you read 80 commentaries, you could get 80 different opinions. He worshiped the Lord. Well, is that Elkanah? Well, this is Hannah talking. Is this Eli? Doesn't make sense. I'll just give you my opinion. I think it is, it's called in scripture proleptic. It's a, a prophetic word spoken now fulfilled later I think it's Samuel Samuel worshipped the Lord that was Hannah's dream for him that was Hannah's vision that she would be in the presence literally in the face of God for the rest of her life his life now Elkanah and Hannah had no clue but what they did prefigured prefigured a most remarkable event. There was a little teenage girl. Her name was Mary. A messenger showed up and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Problem was, Mary was married or engaged to a guy named Joseph. Joseph heard the news and he had every right, just as Elkanah did, to nullify the relationship, call it off and say, I won't take the risk of being married to a woman who is pregnant. But like Elkanah paid his vow, a messenger from God showed up to Joseph and said, take her. Joseph did. And like Elkanah became a surrogate dad, for Samuel, who would ultimately save a nation. Joseph became a surrogate dad for Jesus, who would ultimately save the world. And something interesting happened in Jesus' life. And if you're a mom, you need to sit up and listen closely. His very first miracle involved his mom. 
He turned water to wine. And who was it who was given instructions? Mary looked at the people around and said, whatever he says for you to do, do it. But then his most remarkable work was on the cross. And he is hanging on the cross. He can say whatever in those moments. Seven sayings, one of which is directed to none other than his mother. And he looks down from that cross and he looks at his mother, Mary, and he says, woman. He doesn't call her mother. Woman, behold, your son. He's not talking about himself. His best friend, John, is standing there. In that moment, Jesus is unable to be both Mary's son and her Savior. In order to save her, he's got to die. So he can make a choice, save her soul or as her son, protect her life. He opts to save her soul. And to save her soul, he chooses John to take care of her life. He says, behold, your son. And he looks at John and he says, John, behold, your mother. Take care of my mom while I ultimately take care of my mom. Jesus, the son of Mary, became Jesus, the savior of Mary. Mary never lost that vision. She sang about it in Luke. She never lost that vision of her boy. Aren't you glad? Two things. You have a vision for your children. But number two, if you are not saved by the Christ who died on the cross, your vision for your kids falls way short of God's glorious ideal. Your vision for your children will be no greater than your relationship with Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you truly know him? And do you live in light of that relationship with him?